Good evening. May I wish you all a very warm welcome to this sellout event at the Bloomsbury Institute. I'm Nigel Newton of Bloomsbury. I'm pleased to report that Winston Churchill is having a good fortnight. Last Thursday, the Churchill Center UK celebrated the Churchillian Awards with a magnificent dinner attended by many present tonight at which Michael Howard bestowed the Churchillian Award on John Simpson, the great BBC foreign correspondent who has shown Churchillian courage in the face of fire, reporting from modern theaters of war around the globe. And like Churchill, John Simpson has earned good money from his books, the next one of which on Afghanistan will be published by Bloomsbury in the future. Now we have gathered here tonight to celebrate Churchill as statesman, orator, and writer. We're extremely fortunate to be joined by Nicholas Soames, MP, who is better positioned than anyone to speak with special insight into this subject matter, as he is, of course, Churchill's grandson, an MP, and a great orator in his own right. He will be followed by Professor Peter Clark, former master of Trinity College, Cambridge, and author of the brilliant book, Mr. Churchill's Profession, in which he examines Churchill's equally important career to that as statesman, Churchill the writer. I delighted whilst reading Peter's book to read of the tussle of the contractual negotiations between Churchill and the publishers of his day. Nothing has changed. We are fortunate that this talk will be chaired by Alan Packwood, director of the Churchill Archive Center with whom Bloomsbury have been working on the digitization of the archive, which went live as an academic and educational subscription service only last month on the 10th of October, and universities and schools all over the world are signing up at a rate of knots as we speak. Finally, may I say how delighted we are to see so many Churchillians here tonight, including Minnie, Jack, Marina and Jenny Churchill, and Jonathan Marland, chairman of the Churchill Center UK, and my fellow trustee, Stephen Rubin. Welcome to you all. May I also welcome Gordon Wise of Curtis Brown, Dr. Peter Cattersall, and Richard Overy, all of whom have been involved in the development of the Churchill Archive, about which you will hear more. Alan, over to you. Well, Nigel, thank you very much. Um, of course, I'm biased, but the Churchill Papers collection at the Churchill Archive Centre is not only an amazing testament to the life and the achievements of Sir Winston Churchill, it is also a wonderful resource for the study of our recent past. Almost a million documents covering everything from the Boer War to the Cold War and featuring everyone from Lawrence of Arabia to President Roosevelt to Vivian Lee. I would therefore like to start by thanking Nigel and his wonderful team here at Bloomsbury for the really significant investment that they've made in Winston Churchill and in Churchill scholarship. Now that Bloomsbury has launched the Churchill Archive online, we finally have the platform and the vehicle to take these materials out to the truly global audience that they deserve. And many of those involved with this pioneering project are in this room this evening. And it would be very remiss 
if I didn't thank them on all our behalves. So Jonathan, Ela, Francis, Dan, and your colleagues, you all know who you are. Thank you very much indeed. I'm certain that our discussion tonight is going to emphasize the value of this new digitized resource. And I can give you an example of this. Just this morning, I thought I would type in the words Bedford Square into the search box on the Bloomsbury site to see what came back. And what came back is 30 hits. Many of them are letters from Margot Asquith, because she was living just across the square at number 44. But perhaps the most interesting and resonant is the letter from John Carter, director of Scribner's in New York, whose London office was at number 23. And he enclosed a copy of H. A. H. Clough's poem, Say Not the Struggle Nor to Valeth. The date of that, 10th of July, 1941. To my mind, the great thing about Winston Churchill, like his archive, is the sheer scope of the man. His story has got it all. Naughty schoolboy, fencing champion, polo champion, dashing cavalry officer, successful war correspondent, a member of parliament at 25, a cabinet minister at 33, a writer, a painter, even a would-be pilot and bricklayer. There are dramatic highs and terrible lows. There are switches of party, resignations and election defeats. There are great escapes and moments of walking with destiny or of giving the lion's roar and of accepting great honours. His was a life lived to the full and one which continues to resonate and to fascinate. Tonight we've only got an hour or so, but we hope to come to grips with some of the key aspects of this great man. And in Nicholas Soames and Peter Clark, we have two panellists who can shed light on Churchill, both as a man of action and as a man of words. As a man of action, Churchill famously said that he was not one who liked to be prodded. If anything, I am a prod. And of his writing, he joked, I think it will be best for all parties to leave the past to history, especially as I propose to write that history myself. Well, he prodded and he wrote and he gave us much to consider and I think we need to get into it. The way that this is going to work is I'm going to introduce um, each of our, our panellists in turn. They will speak for 15 to 20 minutes. Um, once they have both spoken, we will then move to a Q&A session at the end of the evening. Well, we're going to start, as you heard, with Nicholas Soames. I'm not sure if it is possible for me to introduce Nicholas Soames, because, of course, he's that increasingly rare thing in British politics, namely a politician who needs no introduction. He's instantly recognisable, he's true to his convictions, he speaks his mind, and consequently he is almost universally known. He attended Eton long before it was made compulsory for prominent Conservatives. <laughs> and he's now sat as a Member of Parliament for almost 30 years, through seven Parliaments, I think, and has held high office as Minister for the Armed Forces and Shadow Secretary of State for Defence. Nicholas obviously brings a unique perspective to our discussion this evening. As the grandson of Sir Winston, he was able to observe Churchill at close quarters at Chartwell in a personal setting out of the public glare before taking up his grandfather's mantle and following his example into the army and then into politics. As I think you will all know, family was incredibly important to Sir Winston Churchill. So among all the hundreds and thousands of documents that comprise Bloomsbury's new Churchill archive online, I'm sure that this one particular letter would have been particularly treasured and enjoyed by Churchill. It's a handwritten letter of the 10th of July, 1956, and it's written from a school in Sussex. And it reads, Dear Grandpa, I hope you're all right. I rode Prince at half-term. How's Grandma? 
Thank you for the photographs you sent me. I look at them every night. Are you going to the south of France again? I hope you will be here when I come back from school. We're going to start exams. I shall do my best. We had a lovely time at the sports. We had a very funny race and we had to climb through tyres and then had to run races. It was all great fun. Much love from Nicholas. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alan. There's always a... He always finds things. That are, there's, and no doubt this online magnificence will create and throw out further things like that. Thank you very much for your very kind words. And thank you, Nigel, very much for arranging this tonight. It's a great pleasure and uh, privilege to be invited to the Bloomsbury Institute to discuss a little bit about, about my grandfather. I, I was casting around in, in writing this speech to try and find something unusual about Churchill and the House of Commons. And I found a point of order that he made to the Speaker on the floor of the House of Commons uh, and early in his career in the House of Commons, which I think is one of the clerks to the House passed to me some time ago. And it was, uh, it's so funny that I, 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 I'm amazed it hasn't um, received, uh, achieved wider circulation. This is what he said to the Speaker. He said, Mr. Speaker, I rise to commit an irregularity for which I venture to ask your indulgence and that of the House. The intervention which I make is without precedent, and the reason for the precedent is also without precedent. And the fact that the reason for my intervention is without precedent is the reason why I must ask for a precedent for my intervention. <laughs> I'm not sure what Mr. Speaker Gully would have, would have made of that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this Churchill this Churchill archive in the digital library uh, of modern international history available for the first time uh, by Bloomsbury is really something truly remarkable and I think a, a, unique, a unique historical asset. It includes more than 800,000 pages of original documents produced between 1874 and 1965 ranging from Winston Churchill's personal correspondence to his official exchanges with kings, presidents, politicians and military leaders, and even his constituents. In this archive is represented the absolute essence of the history of our country down these tumultuous years, and they are truly an absolutely unique and extraordinarily valuable collection of primary source material, which will offer new insight into one of the most fascinating periods of our past. And what this archive does, in my view, is to enable the closest possible access to Churchill's words. And it is the careful study of these words across two centuries that makes this also very important. So what could be more appropriate than tonight, perhaps, to reflect on Churchill's 64 years of almost uninterrupted membership of the House of Commons in various parties, it has to be said, and for various constituencies. And for the 47 years that he sat in the cabinet holding all but one of the great offices of state. He fought 21 elections between 1899 and 1959, of which he won 16, representing the seats of Oldham, Manchester Northwest, Dundee, Epping and finally Woodford. He sat for the last time in the House on the 28th of July 1964. 
And so it is that for the paltry 30 years that I have been a member of Parliament, I am still constantly reminded of and moved by his enduring presence in the daily life and ritual of the House of Commons and to see what an inspiration he yet remains to so many in Parliament in the country and, of course, overseas. The story these papers tell is of the vast panorama of the life of a 24-year-old cavalry subaltern, Lieutenant Churchill of the 4th Hussars, who, armed with sword and pistol, charged the Mahdi's men with the 21st Lancers at the Battle of Omdurman in 1898, in the last formal cavalry charge of the British Army, who lived through two world wars and a time of the most profound economic, social, and technical change, and yet who went on to usher in the nuclear age as Prime Minister in the 1950s. In an age of such transitory things, it is indeed hard to grasp and to remember that in the course of his long public life, Churchill served six of the kings and queens of Great Britain. Commissioned from the Royal Military Academy of Sandhurst to the Fourth Hussars, whilst Queen Victoria, the Queen Empress, was still on the throne. He soldiered in Cuba and Egypt, in India, and on the northwest frontier of Pakistan, in the Sudan and South Africa. He served Edward VII and George V as a minister, as well as a soldier again serving this time in the Grenadier Guards, and then the Royal Scots in the trenches in France and Flanders. Edward VIII as one of his most senior privy councillors, George VI as his wartime Prime Minister, and the present Queen, whom he greatly revered and loved as her first Prime Minister when she ascended the throne in 1952. And how proud he would have been that the young Queen for whom he had such high hopes and in whom he had such great faith, who he saw crowned in the same Abbey Church as was William the Conqueror, at the same age, 26, as the first Queen Elizabeth 400 years earlier, and who would go on to serve her country and its splendid independent people for 60 years so loyally and so conscientiously, and whose diamond jubilee has been so joyously celebrated the length and breadth of the land. Indeed, it makes one smile to think that her first Prime Minister was of an age to have fought up that hellish hill at Spion Cop in the Boer War, whilst her present Prime Minister was not even born when she ascended the throne in 1952. Now, we, each of us, have our own ideas of the lessons that modern leaders can take from Churchill. None of them, through no fault of their own, will have been brought up with the early experience that Churchill had as a soldier of the old empire, which stood him in such very good stead. But there is one point that I think is of tremendous importance in today's rough and tumble political world, where because of its voracious 24-hour news cycle, careful and considered debate and comment is so often very difficult, indeed even impossible. What Churchill did so especially well was to rouse the most ordinary people to what were, frankly, extraordinary perceptions of their future and their destiny. He did this by telling him, by telling them clearly of the grave situation that our country faced and persuading them that we would succeed 
and that we would win. Indeed, his extraordinary achievement was to exercise the privilege of a dictator without ever casting off the mantle of a Democrat. General Ismay once found him bemoaning the bother of preparing a speech for the Commons and obviously apprehensive about its reception. The old soldier said immolently to him, Prime Minister, why don't you just tell them all to go to hell? Churchill turned on him in a flash. You should never say such a thing to me, Pug. I am above all the servant of the house. It should be a source of wonder and pride to all of us that such a man led Britain through the war believing this. But his rhetoric empowered millions to look beyond the havoc of the battlefield, the squalor of their circumstances amid privation and bombardment, and to perceive a higher purpose in their struggles and sacrifices. It is, I think, generally accepted that Churchill's oratory, both in peace and war, mirrored the real man. As Lady Violet Bonham Carter wrote, there was nothing false, inflated or artificial in his eloquence. It was his natural idiom. His world was built and fashioned on heroic lines, and he spoke its language. Indeed, his writings and his speeches did reflect his life. Much has been made of the simplicity of Churchill's oratory. His great gift was to take very complex themes and topics and reduce them not to simplicity and soundbites, but to terms that others could understand without being talked down to. The essence of this philosophy is captured in, I think, one of the most beautiful speeches that he ever made. In 1925, to mark the unveiling of the memorial to the Royal Naval Division, of which he had been the founder and which he had raised when first Lord of the Admiralty. They had served with great gallantry and suffered appalling losses in the First World War. His words to the relatives of the fallen and the survivors and their families are so contemporary that they could be made at the unveiling of any memorial to soldiers fallen in the present conflict. It is a speech, incidentally, that could only have been made by someone who had himself served in what Churchill called the place of honour. Less than two weeks from Remembrance Day, it's not a bad moment to hear it again. This is what he said. We are often tempted to ask ourselves what we gain by the enormous sacrifices made by those to whom this memorial is dedicated. But that was never the issue with those who marched away. No question of advantage presented itself to their minds. They only saw the light shining on the clear path to duty. They only saw their duty to resist oppression, to protect the weak, and to vindicate the profound but unwritten law of the nations, to testify to truth, to justice, and to mercy amongst men. They never asked the question, what shall we gain? They asked only the question, where lies the right? And it was thus that they marched away forever. And yet from their uncalculating exaltation and devotion, detached from all consideration of material gain. We may be sure that goodwill will come to their countrymen and to this island, which they guarded in its reputation and safety so faithfully and so well. 
ladies and gentlemen, speeches do not win wars, but Churchill's in the summer and autumn of 1940 galvanized this nation and nations elsewhere and broadcast to the free world that Hitler had not triumphed, that the British Empire would fight, and that the real war had not ended, but had only just begun. Their impact was phenomenal. They made Hitler hesitate at a crucial moment whilst transforming American public opinion. Churchill's last day in the House of Commons was the 28th of July, 1964. It was probably too late a conclusion to his extraordinary political life. Whatever his ups and downs with the House, he greatly revered and loved our political institutions and understood better than most from his profound knowledge as an historian their absolutely central place to our national life. In a speech at Oxford in 1930, he said this of the House of Commons, and I think it matters as much today as it did when he said it. He said, I see the Houses of Parliament, and particularly the House of Commons, alone amongst the Senates and Chambers of the world, a living and ruling entity. The swift vehicle of public opinion, the arena, perhaps fortunately, the padded arena, of the inevitable class and social conflict, the college from which the ministers of state are chosen, and hitherto the solid and unfailing foundation of the executive power. I regard these parliamentary institutions as precious to us almost beyond compare. They seem to give by far the closest association yet achieved between the life of the people and the action of the state. They possess, apparently, unlimited capacity of adaptiveness, and they stand an effective buffer against every form of revolutionary and reactionary violence. It should be the duty of all faithful subjects to preserve these institutions in their healthy vigor and to revivify them from one generation to another, from the springs of national talent, interest, and esteem. Well, surely, ladies and gentlemen, we can all say amen to that. Isaiah Berlin, the great British philosopher, said of Churchill in 1945 at the end of the war, a man larger than life, composed of bigger and simpler elements than ordinary men, a gigantic historical figure during his own lifetime, superhumanly bold, strong and imaginative, one of the two greatest men of action his nation has produced, an orator of prodigious powers, the savior of his country, a mythical hero who belongs to legend as much as to reality, the largest human being of our time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, certainly he was one of the most brilliant and gifted Englishmen of all time, parliamentarian, statesman, and war leader, a gallant soldier, a fearless early aviator, the master of strategy, journalist, author of 43 book-length works in 72 volumes, and the winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Sage, historian, bricklayer, painter, and visionary, and incidentally a devoted and loving husband, father, and grandfather. And these qualities shine for us today 
even brighter when they march with great good humor, an almost complete lack of any side and pomposity, and most of all a generous and full understanding of men and women and what makes them tick. So here indeed was a man for the difficult times, indeed for all the times, half American and yet ever ardent for closer bonds with North America and with Europe. Born in an English palace 137 years ago and buried in the tiny graveyard of Bladen at the entrance to the park at Blenheim, he was at one with all people of courage and goodwill, no matter what their rank, their race, or their nation. Thank you. Okay. Well, Nicholas, thank you very, very much indeed. Um, we now turn from Churchill as politician and orator to Churchill as historian and writer, from man of action to man of literature. In the acknowledgments at the end of his excellent new book, Mr. Churchill's Profession, published by Bloomsbury and available next door, um, Peter Clarke expresses his puzzlement at how often he has come to write about Churchill. But of course, as Professor of Modern History at Cambridge, how could it have been otherwise? Peter is one of this country's most eminent historians of the 20th century. When not writing about Churchill, he's undertaken biographies of the economist John Maynard Keynes and of the politician Stafford Cripps. It was, of course, Keynes who published a scathing account of Churchill as Chancellor of the Exchequer, entitled The Economic Consequences of Mr. Churchill. And it was of Cripps, as ambassador to the Soviet Union in 1940, that Churchill supposedly quipped, he is a lunatic in a country of lunatics, and it would be a pity to move him. <laughs> Peter's new book is an important one, demonstrating the extent to which Churchill's writing underpinned and informed his political career in the 1930s, just before the outbreak of the Second World War. On the 2nd of November 1949, Churchill received the Sunday Times Book Prize, and he used the occasion to comment about the process of writing a book. And what he said was this. Whilst writing, a book is an adventure. To begin with, it's a toy. Then it's an amusement. Then it becomes a mistress. Then it becomes a master. And then it becomes a tyrant. And in the last stage, just as you're about to be reconciled to your servitude, you kill the monster and fling him to the public. Well, Peter, this is your chance to fling. Thank you, Alan. Well, I suppose I really ought to talk about my new book, but I've just had this great idea for a new series of Downton Abbey, which everybody seems to watch these days. Here's my scenario, if you'll bear with me. We have the old Duke in his truly palatial home, with more rooms than he could reliably count, the walls hung with old masters, or at least those left after selling off the Raphaels and the Van Dykes to pay his debts. His younger son dabbles in politics, an expensive business, but he obliges the family by marrying money, American money, of course. So we now introduce into the storyline this glamorous young heiress from New York who soon has many men in London society swooning for her favors and not swooning in vain, we gather. So at this point, shops of much discreet opening and closing of bedroom doors and all the rest of it. Now, none of this hurts her husband's political career, which is truly spectacular. 
It has its ups, ups and downs, like a switchback. I see him falling within a few years from one of the highest officers in the Tory government to a gruesome early death with whispers that the cause is syphilis, perhaps contracted from one of those pretty housemaids we saw in an earlier episode. And he leaves two sons, both under 21, and leaves them with almost no financial resources. The grieving widow, well, she's soon consoling herself. Within a few years, she gets married again, this time to a young man about the same age as her elder son. Her expensive lifestyle is running through their meager inheritance. The elder son, now in the army, has his eyes on a political career, just like his late lamented father. The boy has a famous name, but no money. What is he to do? Does he have any talent that can be turned into hard cash to finance his ambitions? Is there any profession for which he is fit? Well, yes. I think you've guessed. The young man is Winston Churchill. He'd been born in 1874 in Blenheim Palace, the grandson of the 7th Duke of Marlborough. His father, Lord Randolph Churchill, who died aged 45 in 1895, had left a great reputation, for good or ill. Lady Randolph, the former Jenny Jerome of New York, was simultaneously Winston's adored mother and his biggest embarrassment. Winston, serving with the 4th Hussars in India, wrote home to her in 1898. Speaking quite frankly on the subject, he wrote, there is no doubt that we are both, you and I, equally thoughtless, spendthrift and extravagant. The pinch of the whole matter is that we are damned poor. Churchill's army pay was only 300 pounds a year, say 24K today. How on earth to live on that? What's consistent is his lifelong financial strategy, if we can dignify it with that name, of seeking any means to boost current income rather than to effect significant cuts in expenditure. Now, in this respect, Winston was mother's boy the author of his fortune, as I call the chapter in my new book that's focused on their relationship. And here, his mother really did help him in fashioning a career as a writer. She secured his first writing contract in 1897 as a war correspondent. Two books were quickly made out of war dispatches and published before the author's 25th birthday in November 1899. And even more remarkably, a third book by him was currently appearing in serial form, a novel entitled Savrola. I'm not going to talk much about that. Winston always regarded it as a book that he wouldn't recommend to his friends, and I think he had some insight there. <laughs> in that year, 1899, he took a big career decision to leave the army saying, I can live cheaper and earn more as a writer. He took to quoting Dr. Johnson. It was a lifelong habit from this time. Dr. Johnson saying, no man, sir, except a blockhead ever wrote except for money. And in 1945, at the height 
of his worldwide fame as a statesman, he told one editor, after all, I am a member of your profession. I've never had any money except what my pen has brought me. Now Churchill, of course, and as Nicholas Soames has indicated, had many talents. But writing wasn't a hobby like his painting, for example. It was not just a part-time job, but one that by most ordinary tests became his primary occupation and source of income. In the 1930s, his income from writing was 30 times greater than his income from politics. Ask any accountant. Have we got any accountants in the room? Ask any accountant. What was this man's profession? As a statesman, he never fulfilled his ambition to win the Nobel Peace Prize, but in 1953, again, as Nicholas Soames has indicated, he did win the Nobel Prize for Literature. And though other authors who were Nobel laureates have had an enormous amount written about them, I thought it incredible that there'd never been a single book focused on the writer who won the 1953 prize. But there is now, as you may have seen on the table in the other room. So the book I've written, Mr. Churchill's Profession, tells the story of his life from a new angle, not, of course, ignoring the political career, how false that would be, but keeping the focus on the professional commitments that actually financed it. And the lifestyle that Churchill kept up in this way was one that's impossible to understand, I think, without Downton Abbey, as we can codename it, the assumptions, that is to say, of the aristocratic milieu in which he'd been brought up. In the lovely book that Bloomsbury has helped me to produce, we print two photographs at the beginning of the photo section. One is of Blenheim Palace, Winston's birthplace, viewed from the air, showing the vast extent of this enormous, truly enormous country house. Truly palatial, built at the taxpayer's expense in the early 18th century for Winston's great ancestor, the first Duke of Marlborough, whose victory at Blenheim in 1704 had saved Vienna from the French. And this heritage should never be forgotten. But hence the second photograph on that page, also from the air, showing Chartwell Manor in Kent, Winston's own country house, which I can accurately call more modest because all things are relative. But let's remember, Chartwell had 22 bedrooms. It needed a considerable staff to maintain it in the proper style. In the 1920s, nine indoor servants, plus two secretaries and a nanny for young Mary, Lady Soames, of course. Three gardeners, a chauffeur for the Rolls Royce, a groom for the polo ponies, and a bailiff for the estate. Not every working politician would have lived this way in the 1920s. But Churchill did, still the grandson of a duke in his aristocratic expectations. And here's the paradox. He was also a working man in the strict sense. Unlike his feckless ancestors, he was ready to throw his prodigious energies into his literary profession, 
with an unremitting schedule of writing commitments to pay the bills. His wife, Clementine, didn't like it. But then he bought Chartwell behind her back without telling her until it was too late. She hated Chartwell as much as he loved it, precisely because she knew the costs involved, the burdens it created. I think I'm the first historian to have looked at some fascinating parts of Churchill's enormous archive now, more widely disseminated through the wonderful uh, Bloomsbury enterprise here. The archive itself, of course, is held at Churchill College in Cambridge under the custodianship of Alan Packwood, and he allowed me to use some of the original copies rather than just the microfilm when, when things got really pressing, for which I'm still very grateful. I, I mean, not only the files devoted to Churchill's financial affairs and his tax returns, which I saw no evidence that anybody had ever looked at before. These files showed how Churchill manipulated his fiscal affairs in his constant quest to sustain the sort of income that was so badly needed for the upkeep of Chartwell. Even when he was paid a salary of £5,000 a year as a cabinet minister between the wars, and that would be perhaps a quarter of a million pounds today. He needed at least twice that, or so he confidently told Clementine. And the archives revealed, too, the bills from his wine merchants in the 1930s. That was a nice little treasure trove one morning in the archives to find these. In terms of our money today, his drinks bill in the mid-1930s was about £500 a week. I find this a very useful fact to quote in any domestic arguments I have with my wife, Maria, who thinks my wine bill is uh, excessive. More literary con contracts were always needed to maintain the cash flow. Now, Churchill was not alone among politicians in profiting from the sales of his own memoirs. First, there were the five volumes of the world crisis dealing with the First World War, and then he was to repeat the trick with even greater rewards after World War II. His six volumes, of course, the Second World War, were to have an amazing sale on both sides of the Atlantic in the 1940s and 1950s. But this man's collected works run, there are different ways of counting them. In the official edition, there are 34 volumes with at least three major literary works that are hardly the staple of a professional politician. First, there's the biography of his father, Lord Randolph Churchill, published in two volumes in 1906, for which Winston got an advance in 1906 money, 8,000 pounds, say 650,000 in today's money. It's more than Nigel Newton advanced me for my latest publication, I have to say, <laughs> substantially more. And secondly, in 1929, when he was still Chancellor of the Exchequer, Churchill gaily signed a contract for a big biography of his ancestor, the first Duke of Marlborough. He thought, this is ex extraordinary. He signed the contract when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. He, he signed the contract just days before a general election, before knowing the result. He made the assumption that he would still be in office 
He thought he could write it in his spare time as a cabinet minister. Even William Hague, I think, doesn't uh, believe he can do that. When the book was finally published, The Life of Marlborough was published in the 1930s, it ran to a million, million words, ten times as long as my <coughs> book. The author, of course, had already spent the proceeds, which was an advance of £20,000 in 1930s money, about a million pounds today. And finally, there is his History of the English-Speaking Peoples, published in four volumes in 1956 to eight. And generally, I think, before the publication of my book, assumed to be an old man's book composed largely by a bevy of ghostwriters once Churchill had retired as Prime Minister in 1955. Not so. We can now show this quite clearly. Most of the book was already drafted by the end of 1939. And this, I think, makes a very considerable difference in putting it in context. And moreover, although he had help with it, almost all of it was composed by Churchill himself, admittedly with research assistance, and even when he was at the Admiralty, as First Lord of the Admiralty, from September 1939 onwards, he was still dictating away and trying to finish this book to complete his commitments to his publisher and, of course, net the big advance. And why this particular subject at this particular time? Again, in hindsight, it seems so obvious that we might be mistaken about this. When he signed the contract in the early 1930s, things were a bit different. It wasn't predestined that Churchill would write about the English-speaking peoples in this way. Where can we look for an answer? Well, try looking at his bank statements for the early 1930s. Churchill needed an attractive, popular subject that would appeal on both sides of the Atlantic. And in the 1932-3, with Marlborough, the big biography there, hardly begun, he signed up for a further £20,000 for a history of the English-speaking peoples. Again, a million pounds at, at today's money, with publication both in London and across the Atlantic. So Chartwell was saved yet again at the price of shackling Churchill to his nightly stint in his word factory, as he called his study. I sometimes saw myself as the ideal person to convey the nature of Churchill's task. Here I was, a writer, well into his 60s, trying to complete a thousand words a day and writing about another chap in his 60s, trying to write a thousand words a day. So there was a certain circularity in the enterprise, but I hope it created a, 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 um, a, a nice degree of empathy there. As Churchill said when he assumed power in 1940, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Well, these well-known words reflect a view of his political career, but perhaps his other career as a writer had also prepared him. For when we read Churchill's great speeches of the wartime years, for which my admiration is just as great as that of 
of Nicholas Soames. We are reading the words of an author who had just finished his own draft of his history of the English-speaking people's life. Little wonder that the themes and those historical references often seem so familiar. So we can give, I would suggest, even greater weight to what Churchill himself said in retrospect at the time of his 80th birthday. If I found the right words, you must remember that I have always earned my living by my pen and by my tongue. Okay, well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm um, very conscious of the time because we did start about um, 10 minutes late, so um, we will also aim to finish about 10 minutes late to allow um, some time for questions. Um, there is a microphone in the audience. If you'd like to ask a question, if you can raise your hand, wait for the microphone to come to you, and then introduce yourself, and if you can make your question as brief as possible so we can get as much as possible in, that would be hugely appreciated. But do we have a, a first question for our panellists? Gentleman here. Hi, my name's uh, Chris Robson. I wondered if Churchill was alive today, would he use Twitter for literary purposes or for political purposes, or both? <laughs> well, I very much hate, personally, he wouldn't use them for either. Tolerable <laughs> waste of time and effort and nonsense it is. Um, I have an idea, but the, the thing about Churchill is that he was not a stick in the mud. And uh, you only have to see his, his relationship with the prof, with Lord Sherwell, where he, the prof, I have mean, no doubt that Alan has got wonderful treasures in the archive of, of calculations done by the prof on the back of a menu card on some scientific um, idea. There was a very good book by about the science of the war by, um, the, he was a professor yeah, at Jones. Yes. Jones, yeah. R.V. Jones, Jones, who was uh, one of yeah. the scientific advisors, which, which shows how Churchill was fascinated by science and the prof translated. So, so no doubt he would have disappointed us in using mm. it for both. <laughs> um, I, I, have, I have an idea, but he was certainly not a stick in the mud and he, he believed, but political communication, which is what you're talking yeah. about, of course was totally totally different then, because it was on the floor of the House of Commons and through the newspapers, and that mm. was it, mm. and if, public meetings. If I could just reinforce that point on the, on, the, on the literary side, what Churchill was doing in his great works, especially in the 1930s, was dictating to a stenographer, who then went away and typed it up. This was all in the wee small hours in the morning by this time, who typed it up overnight. It was sent off to his his publishers, Harrops, who, who put it immediately into type. It came back on galleys, which Alan Packwood still jealously uh, and, and properly preserves in the archives there. They then pick it over from that point onwards, making the corrections. We see Winston's own corrections there, either in red ink or in blue crayon or whatever. All. Then it was sent back, and then it would be retyped all over again. Just think what he was doing. He was replicating within the technology of that time the processes that we go through when we work on our, on our laptops and, and we're instantly cutting and pasting and shifting stuff around. It's impossible to, to uh, think that he wouldn't have 
relished yeah. many of the uh, technological opportunities that have opened up for us in this way, I think. And I would just uh, reinforce what both Nicholas and Peter have said, actually. I mean, Churchill certainly embraced um, new technology and the technology of his day, and he also had um, a, a team of people around him, personal secretaries, research assistants, literary assistants, to help with all of this. So I think the short answer might have been that uh, he might not have used Twitter, but he would have had someone who did. <laughs> yes. Um, um, gentleman at the back over there. Thank you very much. My name's Peter Catterall. Um, I just wonder, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, whether Churchill had a much better agent than Peter did. <laughs> Actually, we, we, we used the same agent, <laughs> believe it or not, ourselves. That although he had a certain amount of assistance from Curtis Brown at uh, one or two points, generally speaking, he negotiated, by the 1920s and 30s, he was negotiating his own contracts to a very uh, large extent um, and uh, in dealings both with, first of all, Harrop's in London and later Castle's, uh, dealing with a um, rather irascible man, um, Sir Newman Flower, who was the, the head of Castle's at, at that time, in dealing in New York with uh, Scribner's, by this time with Charles Scribner, well, they were all called Charles Scribner, generation by generation. This was Charlie Scribner IV, I think, <laughs> um, whom uh, Churchill used to beguile over long lunches and, and dinners in New York. And then I think Scribner must often come, have come away from these meetings of, of wondering what on earth he'd agreed to next after so many other contracts had piled up there. But he was very keen on the detail of the business. One should add to that that he latterly, from the early 30s onwards, had the invaluable assistance of one of his most loyal political followers, Brendan Bracken, mm. who, with great financial acumen, also did a lot of the nuts and bolts work here. Mm -hmm. And you all have gathered um, um, that uh, Curtis Brown, of course, represented Churchill from, I think, about 1930 onwards, um, if, not, if not slightly before, um, and continue to represent him to this day, and they are represented in this room this evening. But uh, just to emphasize what Peter said, um, my mother <coughs> told me that um, between the wars, where my grandfather was really very hard up for, for running Chartwell and all the rest of it, and keeping a, keeping a family going, um, if they didn't, if he didn't manage to negotiate a sale of a newspaper article on his own account to one of the great papers, um, they had a disappointing Sunday lunch. <laughs> um, uh, and it was literally as hand to mouth as that for quite a long period of time, where he would, you know, try and sell an article to Lord Beaverbrook or mm. to someone else. And in the end, if you look at those, some of the marvelous mm. letters where he enters into a, an arrangement with Lord Beaverbrook to write 10 columns over t 10 weeks, um, you know, and immediately goes off and buys five cases of champagne. <laughs> <laughs> so it was in this sense a hand-to-mouth existence, and of course one of his later jokes that he re repeats even in the, uh, the Second World War, since he dictated everything, he said, you see we live, we live literally from mouth to hand. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Another question, please. Gentleman there. Hello, Ben Furnival. May I ask Mr. Soames, please, what your uh, final memory is of your late grandfather? Well, I I'm rather disappointing in that respect, really, because 
<clears throat> particularly when I go to America and speak, they're always terribly disappointed because they expect, you know, one to have settled the future of the world with my grandfather. Um, and by the time that I was, I mean, I grew up at Chartwell Farm and the, my parents lived in the farmhouse below mm. the main house um, till I was um, 11 years old. And I suppose I saw him, you know, almost every, it was every day that he was there, that we were there. Uh, and he was fond of his grandchildren and provided he didn't make too much noise about the house. Um, but I was never grown up enough to have a proper conversation with him. And I do obviously deeply regret that because by the time I was, he died when I was 16, by the time I was old enough to, to know anything about anything, um, he was not interested in talking to, to schoolboys. But I remember him only as a very, very affectionate grandfather. And there is, I have to tell the story because my friend Philip Oliver here, uh, my colleague in Parliament, loves it. True, Roy Jenkins discovered in, in, and published in his book that I got into my grandfather's bedroom one day <coughs> um, and it was heavily guarded by various sort of secretaries and, and people who looked after him. I managed to get past him and I got into the bedroom and he was reading the newspaper and it was a perfect domestic scene. I mean, the budgerigar was sitting on the table and the marmalade cat was sitting on the bed and he was reading the papers and I he paid no attention at all, and I, I coughed, and he put his newspaper down, and he looked over his, over his newspaper, and he said, what do you want, boy? And I said, is it true, Grandpapa, that you are the greatest man in the world? And he said, yes, now bugger off and leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> that is my, you know, my memory is of, of a very affectionate grandfather. He was always extremely good at tipping one before he went away back to school. Mm -hmm. um, he was very generous. Um, uh, and, and I think, um, as, as Alan said, I mean, his family were very important to him. So we saw a lot of it, but only as, uh, uh, as an affectionate grandfather. I was much more frightened of my grandmother than I was of my grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think we've got time for uh, one more question, if we take from the middle over here. Hi, my name's Dan Lank. Um, I'm just interested to know, obviously, uh, incredible writer, but um, with with everything else, did he get time to read much and what sort of things did he read? He did get time to read and his research assistants in the 1930s were, were often very puzzled about this because he always liked what he, what he called a, a young man from Oxford by which he meant a, a research assistant who was, you know, Bill read Deacon. history and Bill Deakin latterly, Maurice Ashley bef before that. They all fulfilled this role. And they, they would recommend stuff to him, and um, he would, would apparently, you know, take no particular note of this. And yet, somehow, in the middle of those packed days, and very long days, and finishing two or three o'clock in the morning on the dictating session, it, it would turn out that he had, he, he had read some of this stuff. Um, and even when he was most pressed, it's quite extraordinary, in the, in the summer of 1939, he jumped ahead in, in the history of the English-speaking peoples. He realised he wasn't going to get uh, to the end in time. And he started doing something he really enjoyed, which was writing about the American Civil War. And the plan was 10,000 words on the American Civil War. He wrote 50,000 words on the American Civil War. What did he read for that? Well, I'm not saying that this was his exclusive reading, but he writes at one point... Uh, to the, the head of the historical section at, at the war office, he says, 
I've just been reading Gone with the Wind. It's a terrific book, he said. But I expect you're too busy with your work to be able to read this. But somehow he wasn't. But I, Alan will correct me on this, but I think I'm right in saying that Jock Colville described Churchill as being the best red man he'd ever met. Mm. And, and, you know, between... You know, he suddenly realised that he'd done no work at all when he was in the army class at Harrow and, and went mm. on to Sandhurst. And when he got to India, where there was, you know, you soldiered for two hours in the morning, played polo for two hours in the afternoon, otherwise there was nothing to do because of the, the heat, and, except for some fighting every now and again. He, he set to, and you have to look at his, his bills, which are still, you've got them. Yes, you? we have. From all the bookshops, so the incredible books that Lady mm. Randolph sent out to him, which showed the breadth of what he read and mm. learned. And um, he could quote, um, and would quote, mm. after dinner, from memory, pages of Macaulay. Pages of them. So he was a very well-read man. Mm. I think that's reinforced by the archive. It does reveal how wide and how eclectic his reading was. And the funniest story I'm aware of, and I don't know whether it's true or not, is that he was pictured getting off the plane and arriving at the Bermuda Conference with C.S. Forrester's death to the French. <laughs> but, ladies and gentlemen, I think we've probably reached the end of the beginning because I think you can see that uh, this could go on and I think there's scope um, with uh, Bloomsbury's permission for perhaps for other um, Churchill Institute symposiums in the, in, in the future. Um, but I'd just like you to, uh, um, to, to join me in, in thanking Bloomsbury for hosting mm, this yeah, yeah. and for yes. thanking our two wonderful panellists, Nicholas Soames and Peter Clark. Thank you.